The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you now to please turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13. This will be the last message from 1 Corinthians of this year as we move into other topics and Advent season, and we'll pick up again in the new year in chapter 14. Our chapter tonight is a one commonly read at weddings, and uh, rightly so, for its emphasis on love, and I have no problem with that as long as the focus is on God's love rather than just human love. I think you might agree with me that we live in a culture that is obsessed with falling in love, being in love, feeling loved, but not so sure how to actually do love. I believe that Paul was writing to a Corinthian culture not unlike our own, rather self-consumed, obsessed with abilities and gifts, dreams and feelings, a passion for perfection, and a church that needed a reordering of their love according to a biblical definition, that with them we might learn how to worship the God who is love. We might learn to secure our identity in the God who bestows our worth on us through the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Please follow as I read at the very end of chapter 12 and in chapter 13. Paul writes, And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, 
hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. Father, we would ask once again that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All you need is love, says John Lennon of the Beatles. And for decades, many musicians and songwriters have joined the Beatles chorus with similar antidotes and admonitions of the power of love to transform us, to change us, to cure the world's ills. But then there are counter voices like Karen Carpenter. If you remember her song, All You Get From Love is a Love Song. These great singers and musicians in pop culture have been battling for decades. There's the optimist side that just, we just need to imagine a world without loneliness, without suffering, without pain or violence. But then the counter voice of the pessimist is guarded, jaded, having been burnt by human love, even hardened against it. Well, I believe that both the romantic proponents of love's possibilities, as well as the rational antagonists against it, are each wrong. Wrong with a human-centered view of love. We live in a culture determined to fix itself, to perfect ourselves. We we are told that our products and services, that our, our knowledge and our technologies will improve our lives. Presidential candidates are running on the mantra that they can fix America and make America great again. I believe that all these efforts will fail because they are human-centered. Only God's love can fix us. Only God's love can perfect us. And I believe Paul here is correcting his Corinthian congregation, and he has correction for us as well, our faulty understanding of our deepest, most human desire to be loved. Having already emphasized gifts and the unity of the body of Christ, now Paul moves on to more important matters where he shows his people a more excellent way. Paul, in our passage, if you look at the context, he's demoting the, the gifts of speech and knowledge and faith in favor of something far more important, what he calls agape love. Paul insists that if he speaks in the tongues of men and with angels, but has not love, he is nothing more than a loud, clanging instrument, creating dissonance, clashing with a band. Imagine being at a high school football game and watching the marching band out on the field at halftime, and one band member just starts to go astray and play out a tune. All the focus will be on this one musician causing discord. J.R.R. Tolkien, in the Silmarillion, which is the creation myth story that forms the backdrop of Lord of the Rings, 
tells a story of the creator Aluvatar, who creates these angel-like beings who form a choir, who sing Middle Earth into existence. But then there's his enemy, Melkor, who begins to sing out of tune, creating discord in the great primordial choir, causing a war, a rebellious cosmic war at the early Middle Earth. The absence of love is discord. Chaos in God's good creation. Paul goes on to say that if I have understanding and insight into the mysteries of the world and even have the faith to move mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. We take great pride in knowledge. Our universities are centers of great knowledge and learning. We have libraries, and now even we have the great boast of the internet, of fathomless, infinite knowledge. But greatness in God's kingdom is not measured in knowledge. And it's also not measured in great acts of faith, even faith that moves mountains, to quote Jesus. It's measured in love. It's not measured even in charity and sacrifice, as Paul points out the great gifts and givers and sacrifices of many. In our culture, we have a great tradition of philanthropy. We live in a capitalistic society of great entrepreneurship. We've seen amazing technologies and transportation and communication and medical science that have made millionaires and billionaires. You have Bill and Melinda Gates giving away tens of billions of dollars to help relieve human suffering, to solve some of the world's toughest problems. But then there's those who sacrifice, but not with money, but with their very lives. Those who rescue people. Those who are martyred for their faith, both Christian and non. Paul says it is possible to be misguided in our giving and our sacrifice if it's not rooted in true love. People can do great and amazing things and gain nothing. Because greatness in the kingdom of God is measured in love. Without love, we are just making noise. We are nothing. We gain nothing. And so, if we are to understand love, if we are to follow God's dictates of what it means to be a loving people, we need to hear from his word, and he thankfully gives us the closest thing we have to a definition in verses 4 through 7. In these verses, Paul mentions agape explicitly three times. Uh, The word in the Greek language that Paul elevated to communicate the the divine love of God. And he gives us eight characteristics of what love is and eight characteristics of what love is not. He begins with love is patient. This means it's long-suffering with difficult and needy people. To be patient means to have appropriate expectations in a fallen world. It means to have perspective in light of eternity. Love is also kind. 
It shows dignity to other people intending to do them good. It's not stingy or begrudging, but generous. True love gives people the benefit of the doubt, believes the best about them, rather than interpreting them in the worst light, and yet not ignorant of people's sin nature. Paul says in verse 7 that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The root word for bear means to put a roof on, to cover. It can even mean to cover the mouth, to be silent, to not complain during hardship. In other words, to put a lid on it. James writes that the man who can control his tongue is the perfect man. Well, there's only been one so far. Love believes all things, but not in a Disney-like belief. It's not a self-focused belief of naivete, of just hoping for the best. It's rooted in a substance that is external to us, that is eternal, rooted in eternal hope, that shares the hope of Joseph, who expressed it well in Genesis 50, believing that God intended that for good what man intended for evil, and believing in the sovereign God who works all things together for good for those that love him. Love means endurance, trusting that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Well, what about what love is not? Paul says that love does not envy. It does not covet other people's possessions, abilities, and accomplishments. You see, envy resents God's favor on others. Illustrated by Cain towards Abel. True love is content. It also does not boast, puffing itself up in vain glory. You see, boasting is rooted in a deep insecurity. The need to tout oneself and prove oneself and garner admiration from others. You know, there can be a fine line between giving praise to God and simply revealing one's own accomplishments or the accomplishments of our children. Think about that when you write your Christmas letter this year or you post your next announcement on Facebook. Related to boasting is arrogance. That form of human pride that presumes that we are better than other people. It's an excessive view of oneself, of one's, wor- one's worth. It's characteristic of people who think themselves too good to be in the company of certain others. In contrast, true love is humble, deflects praise, is confident, secure, and able to associate with all kinds of people. Love is not rude, Paul says. It's not insulting or offensive. It does not seek to embarrass others. It's not self-centered or demanding. It's not irritable, easily provoked or edgy. It's not resentful, giving to to holding grudges, enlisting other people's offenses. True love is thoughtful, sensitive, self-aware, secure. It keeps short accounts. It easily forgives. If this is God's standard, 
if this is God's requirement, we're in trouble. So I look at this list, and I fail in the very first one. Love is patient. I don't even get past that one before I even look at the rest of this list that Paul gives. When I was a junior in high school, after becoming a Christian, I became part of this network of youth ministries in the Episcopal Diocese of Houston. And we would do retreats together and worship together and prayer meetings together. These are kids from all kinds of different high schools across the Houston area. And there was this one girl named Dina in our company. And she had a reputation for being very needy, very clingy and negative. And she would call people and and, and seek their attention. She would corner people on these retreats and gatherings And Dina was like a bottomless pit. No matter what you said to her, or how you shared scripture with her, or prayed for her, nothing seemed to help to fill up her emptiness inside. And so many of us teenagers grew to avoid her, ignore her, even resent her because we couldn't fix her. During my second year of college, I joined a group of Christians who tutored school children, elementary school children at a nearby school after their school day. And I was assigned a little boy who was hyperactive, who came from a fatherless home who did very poor in his academics, and I wanted to help him with his homework to improve his grades. He wanted to play and have fun. I made it through the first year, and I did not sign up for the second year because I was frustrated. In hindsight, I realized I had failed to see that this little boy needed someone to love him, to affirm him, to enjoy him, and not try to fix him and make him get better grades. I think if I had taken the time to invest in him playfully and relationally, he might have learned to value school as he felt valued as a person. Perhaps you're more patient than I am, but I suppose that everyone here fails the love test somewhere on this great divine list. You know, doing good is a good thing. But oftentimes we can do it for selfish reasons. If our goal is to fix people rather than love them, that's not love. We humanize them when we enjoy them for whom God created them to be and worship Christ together. Fallen people are needy. They are desperately, desperately want to be loved. I saw on the internet news this week that Jennifer Lawrence, the uh, star in the Hunger Games series, a, a beautiful, uh, famous, successful movie star, admits candidly that she is lonely on Saturday nights. That the men she dates treat her meanly. Broken dysfunctional people are horrible lovers. 
the old song said it well, that we are looking for love in all the wrong places. Such was the case for a Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well who had been seeking in men all of her life what they could not provide for her. They only failed her and abused her. But then like other women in the gospel, she's encounters in Jesus, she finds in him one that can meet her needs like no other man could meet. Finding love in the one and only place that God's standard of love can be met. Verses 8 through 12 point to two other false pursuits. Our culture is idolatry with knowledge and perfection. There is no end to our books. There, there's a, a, no end to the number of books that Google wants to put electronically on the internet. There's no end to the proliferation of websites. The internet gives us this illusion that we can have access to infinite knowledge. And yet it's all a drop in the bucket compared to God's true infinite knowledge. Paul says that prophecies and tongues and even knowledge will pass away. Medical science and social science educators are determined to perfect the human race, believing the illusion of a never-ending track of progress, helping to speed up evolution to eliminate our human flaws. You know, Paul promises that perfection is coming, but not through human ingenuity. We have but partial and imperfect knowledge. We're like children waiting maturity to arrive. Our vision is warped, like looking through a flawed looking glass, Paul writes. But our hope is not in ourselves. Becoming masters of our gifts, completing our knowledge, or perfecting our love. Our hope is found in verse 12 on that great and glorious day that we will see our Savior face to face, that we will then know fully, even as we are fully known. The verb know in Hebrew has deeply personal connotations, even speaking to the intimacy between husband and wife. Paul, I believe, is speaking to the deepest desire of human hearts, for real relational intimacy. In my years of ministry, I've grown convinced that the true root of all sexual sin and love disorders is false and misplaced intimacy. We are hardwired for intimacy. To know and to be known, to be free, to be ourselves, to be accepted, to be loved. Decades ago, C.S. Lewis, in one of his radio broadcasts, said that when a society caves in and yields to consumer materialism, that society will inevitably begin to worship love and sex to replace and to fill the void left behind by rejecting God and transcendent truth. I believe that's so true today in post-Christian Europe, Canada, and the growing secular nature of our American society. Just focused on material goods and financial security, 
while explicitly rejecting that which is transcendent and beyond the material. Consequently, people are left chasing romance, exotic desires and experiences, failing in love over and over and over, and a never-ending quest to fill the empty hole in their hearts that only God can fill. So what do we do with this? How do we face and deal with our great failure in love? Well, I believe we would read 1 Corinthians 13 wrongly if we focus on it as a prescription on how to love better, how to improve our marriages and improve conflict and love the needy. We first must see it as descriptive, as true divine love. And as we understand it as God's love, we begin to recognize our own failure, our weakness and our inability, and embrace the fact that it's God's love for us that transforms us and enables us to love in his likeness. I believe 1 John chapter 3, the apostle defines love well. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He says in the next chapter, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You need to be born again. To know and experience true and eternal love if you have any hope of reciprocating that love and giving it to another person. See, God has been pursuing us and loving us from the very beginning. And when his people fell away from him, when his people continued to stumble into idolatry and false worship and immorality, God used his promises and his law, even exiling his people and punishment to help correct their idolatry. And when all of those efforts failed, not that God can fail, he demonstrated the full extent of his love. As John writes, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. We love because he first loved God us. Recently, my wife and I and our family watched the ragamuffin story of Rich Mullins, the Christian singer-songwriter who died in 97, just months before my wife and I were married. And uh, my wife and I were big fans of his back in the 80s and 90s. And it was news to us that through his young adulthood and adult life, uh, Rich Mullins, the writer of Our God is an Awesome God and other famous songs, he bore a deep father wound, having struggled his adult life feeling unloved and accepted by his father who never seemed to accept his musical gifts as a proper expression of manhood and masculinity. He was wounded by many harsh words of his father from his childhood, and Rich Mullen struggled with deep anger and alcoholism. And what turned the corner for Rich Mullins was listening to the preaching and teaching of Brennan Manning, 
a recovering alcoholic and former Catholic priest, I believe, who came to know Jesus in an evangelical way. And Brendan Manning has this to say in one of his sermons when he, he is convinced that on the judgment day, those who stand before Jesus will hear one question. Did you believe that I loved you? And the true believer will have security and confidence in Abba Father that yes, indeed, I was loved by you, demonstrated by your life and your death and your sacrifice in my place. As Rich Mullins began to discover this fresh understanding of the gospel, he went on a retreat, and on that retreat he was instructed to rewrite his story, to go back and look at all those painful episodes of harshness and rejection from his father and to pray and ask his heavenly father to rewrite his story, to meet him in those places of pain and insecurity and rejection and write a new story of the father's love, communicating affirmation and acceptance and approval and righteousness in Christ. Rich became a free man, no longer bound by the memories and harshness of a very flawed father, but now walking in the true love and acceptance before the father he had experienced through Christ. Friend, if you're one who struggles to truly believe that God loves you, I encourage you to take up an exercise with this passage that you will use it to write God's love letter to you, that you will use it as a prayer guide to inform yourself, even when you are not feeling God's love, that you can objectively embrace the fact that God is patient with you. God is kind towards you. God is not easily angered by you. God is not irritated with you. God does not resent you. God, your loving Father, bears with you. He believes in you. He has hope for you. He endures for you, and his love for you will never end. If you believe that God truly loves you, that he sent his son to die for you, to sacrifice himself to pour out his blood to cover your sins. If you believe and accept that, it changes everything. Your self-worth is not based upon your performance, what other people think about you, what you've accomplished. Your value to God is not as good as your most recent sermon, performance evaluation, sporting event accomplishment, or test grade. You're no longer looking for love in all the wrong places because you have found it at the right place, at the feet of Jesus. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know you've experienced the love of God if you can die to self. The key to loving well and the likeness of Christ is following in his likeness to die to self and embrace his sacrifice for you because 
Believing that God loves you transforms your love for others. Though very imperfectly, we are set free from our do-goodism, our efforts to fix people, to just make them more acceptable to us. We're set free to be patient and kind when people are difficult and needy. Set free to be content and less envious, not having the need to prove ourselves with boasting. A heart full of God's love is less irritable, less resentful, consumed with rejoicing in God's truth, able to bear all things, believe God's best, and live with eternal hope. The myth tells us of Pandora, the ancient Greek princess who was given a mysterious box by the gods who were jealous of her beauty. She was told to never open it. But curiosity and temptation got the best of her, and she opened the box, releasing afflictions all over earth, disease, malaise, and madness. And all hope would have been lost if it had not been for a compassionate God who allowed her to close the box in time and find the one antidote to make life bearable, hope. The ancient world and its struggle to explain all that has gone wrong. To find something worth living for beyond the grave is holding on to hope. But the question is hope in what? What is this hope that we hold out for? Friend, you and I have an eternal and everlasting hope. We hope in a place called heaven. Jonathan Edwards described heaven as a world of love. God's people do not love the way the world loves in its romantic obsessions. Our hope with the world's hope in our own progress or have faith in the mere Disney belief in oneself. A heart rightly ordered for what only God can provide in an eternal world of love. John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Just as he is pure. If you are in Christ, you are being perfected in love with a living hope and a lasting faith. Abide in his love. And allow God to use you to spread the message of his love, to point people to the one true lover of their souls, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you have demonstrated your love for us in time, in space, and in human history. By the giving of your Son, the one perfect gift, the one who laid down his life for us. 
I pray for each one here that we will walk out of this place more sure, more confident that you are the God who indeed loves us, who desires us, who wants to perfect us in the likeness of Christ. May you give us that hope, that faith, and that eternal love that you have with your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.